Yeah, we're going to be in 1 Kings this morning. Actually, we're not going to do much in actually 1 Kings this morning. What we are going to do is start the 1 Kings sermon series, which I'm entitling Worship, Word, and Weakness. And I'll get, in a minute, I'll get to kind of how those relate to the book. Uh, but my goal this morning is um, to kind of set you up for success. This book, uh, I, do, I always like to start right before I, I don't do this before, like when I'm working on the sermon, but I, like the, the week before, I'll search and see who else has preached on this book and then kind of see how they're doing it, you know, just out of like curiosity of how they've divided it up. And there's like amazingly little out there. Um, this book, in just one book, by the way, it's not two, it's two in your Bible, First and Second Kings, but originally it was one, all right? And I think one of the reasons for that is it can be a little confusing, just the way the story goes. And if you don't kind of know some history, you know, it's like if you read something that, where there's some assumptions made about that you wonder, like if a book written to Americans, certain things about American culture and history that are not explicitly mentioned, but if you don't know those things, those little pieces of information, you can get lost like really fast. And I think that happens a lot with First and Second Kings. It just, if you, if it, especially the first time you've read it, you're like, who are all these people? And why this really long description of the temple? This seems like, it's like reading like, you know, A Christmas Carol by Dickens, you know, where it's just cataloging like everything in a room. You're like, I don't care about the you know, ink blotter on your desk. Like, it has nothing to do with the story. And you're right, it has nothing to do with the story. But in this case, every detail matters. And if you don't know why they matter or what's happening or where the story is going, it can be a little disheartening um, to read. And so I'm going to help you with that, okay? Um, not just this morning, but as we go along. So I'm, I'm saving some things to when there's an example of it later as a reading, and I'll share some things this morning. Um, so first thing, first and second Kings, as I mentioned, was originally one book. It's two books in your Bible, but they go together. I will refer to them it as Kings or the Book of Kings quite a lot, and that's what I'm talking. When I say that, I'm referring to both, right? Um, they were written as one cohesive story from beginning to end. Uh, they should be read together, and really, they should be read together with First and Second Samuel. I've already preached through First and Second Samuel. I don't know how long ago it was. It's been years now, forever. Uh, but but this is like, in fact, in the Septuagint, which is the a very old Greek translation of the Bible, it was first and second Samuel was first and second Kings, and first and second Kings that you're reading was third and fourth Kings. It was all kind of one long story. And so I'm going to spend some time this morning recapping a little bit of Samuel for you. Um, the date and the author, the book itself is anonymous. People love to fight over this one. Um, Jewish rabbinical tradition says the prophet Jeremiah is the author, but there's not really any evidence for that that we have. Um, so that might be true. Um, they were pretty confident about it, um, but didn't give a lot of reasons. If I had to guess, I'd say it was one author, unknown, that compiled a lot of different histories together into 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th books. Um, probably finalized around or by 550 B.C., so it's pretty old, 550 years before Christ. The genre, which is really important for us to think about is a narrative history. So it's stories, 
but it's history. So it's like almost like reading historical fiction in a way, um, but it's not fiction. So it's real things that really happen. So this is one of the first things when we start applying these things to our lives, we can sort of start to we turn everything into a metaphor, and we're not going to do that. These are real people that did real things, okay? And all the things that you see happen, even the miraculous things, are real things that really happen involving real people with a real God in a real time and place, okay? So it's real history. Some of it is amazing and hard to believe really happened, but this is all history, all of it, even the fantastical parts. It's all history, okay? Um, and that's the way I'm going to teach it. This leads us to one of the main reasons I think Kings doesn't get studied or preached very often. It can be difficult to keep the historical details straight, which is part of why I'm here. And I just want to confess to you, I'm terrible at historical details. I failed history in high school, okay, because I could not remember the dates, the names and the dates. I could never connect the two. I had a date in my head, and I had a name in my head. I just couldn't get them to go together. So if I blow it on that point, just feel free to correct me. All right, it's going to happen, but that's what I'll help you with this as we go. Um, being a narrative also presents some challenges in how we apply it to our lives. I've told you before that when you're studying the Bible, you're basically doing two things, right? You're, you're working on, you're trying to figure out the meaning, which is what do the words on the page mean? Well, how can I take these words and restate them in my own words without adding or taking anything away, right? That's meaning. And then there's application. And application is, is trying to take the meaning that you've uncovered and, and connect it with your own life and the life of the church here and now, okay? And sometimes the meaning is really hard. Like, just figuring out what the words mean. Like, we've done a lot of these, like in First Corinthians, we encountered some, where you're reading, like, there's lots of this in the New Testament. You read something from Paul, for example, and it's like, like a really long run-on sentence. And you're like, I don't know what this means. If I knew what it meant, I could apply it to my life, but I don't understand what this means, and you have to really work to get the meaning. And other times, like First and Second Kings, the meaning is the easy. It's just somebody telling you a story. And you, you, you almost don't have to think about what the words mean, but boy, applying it to your life can be a real challenge because it is so far removed historically and culturally from your life. Like, we don't have kings, supposedly, in this country. We're not supposed to, anyway. So it's kind of, you start thinking about the, the monarchy, well, you know, we don't live in Britain, maybe it'd be a little easier in Britain, but you're having to build some bridges, right? And find some commonality. And so I'll help you with that, too. Um, your temptation will be, so here's our first warning, your temptation is going to be to not put any effort into the application. Because it's easy to understand. You just find yourself reading and reading and reading and never stopping, just going, wow, that's an interesting story. And you close your Bible and you move on and you don't stop yourself because it's the easy thing to do is to not apply it. And so I just want to warn you not to push against that temptation. Take your time. Just, you can I read through First and Second Kings pretty quick because it reads fast, even though it's long. But take the time to apply it as you go. Um, okay, so the story of Kings is a tragic one. There's not a lot of bright spots in this book. It's just, you know, it's not exactly depressing because it's, it's real life, 
it will seem very, very, very familiar to you. But it's not a happy story because there's a lot of failure. In fact, it's really the story of decline, the slow decline of God's people until their ultimate fall, like sacrificing human babies fall. Like, yeah, that's on in the historical record. That's a dark spot, right? That's where this is headed, right? What we get most is negative examples of how not to live, how not to worship, how not to respond to God. And that's actually very helpful. <laughs> right? There's, I feel like most of the advice I give anybody, my kids or anyone, is what not to do. I can tell you it's hard for me to know what to do. But what not to do is a lot easier. Here's a giant pit. Do not step in that pit. I've been in that pit. It's bad in there. Don't go in there. And there's another pit over here. Don't go in that pit. And that's a lot of what we see in Kings. And a lot of it is in the form, the good stuff is in the form of a promise. An aching anticipation. There must be something more. There must be someone more. There's something better. A coming king, right? who's not going to be like these kings. He's going to be the perfect king, right? So there's an ache in your heart that gets opened up, and the answer to that is going to be Jesus. And we'll get into that this morning, actually. So, Tony Morita, a great commentator on kings, identifies three broad themes. I already mentioned them, worship, word, and weakness. All three W's. You should be able to remember that. You will never get that from me again. Rhyming words. Um, First, worship. That's the basic requirement of being God's people, is worshiping him. It's sort of what makes you God's people, right? Is that you, you acknowledge him as God, as creator, as your source, as your savior, as your reason for being. That's worship. Solomon actually started off really well by building a temple that was dreamed up by his father David, but eventually becomes... He becomes an idolater along with so many after him. He starts really strong. He builds an actual place of worship. That's great. Good job. On the worship front, you're doing fine. And then, like, at the last minute, he just sort of dive bombs and starts marrying other, you know, pagan women and worshiping, inviting their gods even into the temple itself. I mean, it's like a hard left turn. You're doing so well, Solomon. That's where he goes. The kingdom of Israel itself is eventually divided into two over-idolatry as the primary problem. And that's one of the key historical points you've got to remember is Israel gets divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We'll see that happen later. It's one of those things where if you miss those couple of verses, you become really confused later about what's going on here and where, what's Judah, right? The various kings that rise and fall in Israel and Judah are judged largely on this issue alone. Do you, what is their position on, what is their response to idolatry in their nation? Do they worship false gods themselves? That's the first question. The second question is, do you allow people to worship false gods in your kingdom? And thirdly, do you actually go tear down the places of worship themselves? Those are kind of three levels. Three questions. You have the same questions in our life, right? What kind of idolatry do you tolerate in your life? Do you bow down yourself to the idols of this world? Or do you, do you simply tolerate them in your life? Or do you go after them and destroy them? Because God is really into destroying them, by the way. 
He topples idols over constantly. He won't feed them. He won't bow down to them. You can see God come and, and, and bless this thing I'm doing. I have this new idol that I'm really into. Can you come bless it? He says, no, what I will do is destroy it. Thanks for pointing it out. So this becomes the question over and over again with Israel's kings, and it becomes a question for us. Secondly is word. What do I mean by that? God's people were commanded to live according to God's word, and the kings and their people repeatedly failed to do so. It's astounding. So if, if the first basic requirement of being the people of God is to worship him, the second would be do what he says. Like, know what he says, because he's, he's telling us. He says, here's what, I here's what I want you to do. Here's who I am, here's how I want you to worship, here's what I want you to do, here's what I don't want you to do. And what we repeatedly do is go and do the thing that he tells us not to do, and don't do the things that he tells us to do, right? This is the constant struggle and we'll see this here. God raises up multiple prophets, Elijah and Elisha, namely. Those are really fun guys we'll get to know later. And he raises them up to tell the people what God says. So he doesn't just give them the written down stuff. He also sends somebody face to face, a voice they can hear, and says, do this, don't do that. Remember your covenant with God, right? Don't abandon the Lord your God or else. Right? The following things will happen. And the people always do what? They grumble and they complain and sometimes they kill the prophets. Because prophets are annoying. They just constantly go, remember God, remember what God says, remember what God says. And when you're not doing what God says, do you want that person around? Not so much. You want them to be quiet. Stop making me feel bad. I'm trying to enjoy my, my life. And they're hassling you into remembering God. And this is, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. What are you doing? What are you doing? What? Don't go there. Don't think about that. Don't watch that. Don't talk that way. Don't do that. Just come. Remember God. Yeah. All right, this is always the struggle. We see this not just with the kings, but we see this with all those that follow them. Reformation among God's people cannot happen without recovery of the word. We'll see that explicitly in these stories. Everyone's trying to do this now. Have you noticed? That, that everyone wants to reform Christianity, make it better, but do it with the Bible over there. And, but the problem is we're people of the book, as they say, right? It's who we are. It's we, we read the book, we read what God says, and then we do our best to do what it says and to believe what it says and, and to let it define us and not us define God. This is what we do. So the very idea that you, have, you can reform the faith without the book is insane. But everyone seems to be trying it. And it doesn't go well. There is no way to reform. Like, I'm all for being more Christian. I mean, I'm for that. I'm for the concept of reforming Christianity because I want to be more Christian. I want to be more, I want to get rid of stuff that's not Christian. How do I know what is Christian and what is not? How do I know what the things are that I believe or do or say 
that seem Christian but are not Christian. Right? That's what Reformation is about. Do I just close my eyes and look within myself and say, Ben, what makes you comfortable and uncomfortable? Truly, surely, the things that make you uncomfortable are not Christianity. The things that make you comfortable are Christianity. What do you end up with at that point is some, whatever the Bennyanity or whatever the word is, the, the, the religion of Ben, Ben's comfort, custom designed, tailored for you. That's what we should do. You know, we should have just a website and you can enter in all your preferences and it spits out a religion just for you. We'd make millions. Just on my ad revenue alone, we'd make a lot of money. Custom design just for you. This is not Christianity, right? We have to start with the scripture. That's how we know what is Christian and what's not. And this is just as true for us as it was for them. When Reformation would come, when revival would come, it always starts with remembering what God has said and starting there and staying there. That's what happens. We'll see that story played out in the, in the book of Kings. And then thirdly, we have weakness. Kings reminds us repeatedly that every human leader is fatally flawed. Yes, alas, even me. Not just flawed. Not just like, oh, you have some annoying weaknesses, but fatally, fatally flawed. Like if if God doesn't do something, I'm going to blow this thing up and drive it into the ground. That kind of flaw. And every human being carries this kind of weakness in them. The potential for disaster is in every one of you, including me. And this is what we see. We see like great promise. Solomon, like, goodness, he's the son of David, right? And, and David brought the kingdom together, the 12 tribes unified them together, affluence beyond imagination. And Solomon comes along and just flourishes it, just all his wisdom. Like, the, so, such promise. I mean, this could have been the greatest kingdom on the earth. And then before he could die and leave a positive legacy behind, he just blows it up. Because he just couldn't keep his eyes off the wrong women. It's amazing. And then it's just one story after another story after another story of the same promise and the same failure over and over and over again. Does that sound familiar? How many leaders have we seen in churches and in the world? No difference where there's all this elevating them to a position of kinghood almost. Oh, you, you have figured it out. You have sorted out church. You, stick, you cracked the code. You got it nailed down. Over goes the idol. You're going to save this nation. Over goes the idol every single time. We've got an election coming up. I didn't time this on purpose, but it is so applicable. Watch your heart and what it does, how it wants, feel how it wants to attach itself to a man and set its hopes on a person 
to save us and to save this nation or save the church or whatever the thing is. Your heart wants to just reach out and attach itself to it. And when that happens, you're in a bad place. God sees that and he goes, I'm not into it. I'm going to frustrate you. I'm going to frustrate that every time because it's me and me alone. I'm it. I'm at the top. I'm the one you put your hope in. So look at this theme. I've got several scriptures to read, and I thought about not doing this. I might be working you too hard, but obviously I changed my mind. I just don't think there's any other way to see this, okay, than to just read the scriptures and to think and note the thread, the kingly thread running from the beginning all the way to the end, okay? So let's start in Genesis 17. Verses 6 through 8. I shouldn't say start. We started a while ago. This is a promise to Abraham. Covenant with Abraham. Look what he says. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, everlasting covenant, forever, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So kings and everlasting covenant, right? Let's note those themes. Let's move to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 9 to 16. He says, and I have been with you wherever you went. Excuse me, I should give you context. This is God, this is Samuel prophesying to David. Okay? He says, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. You hear the echoes of the Genesis promise all over it. Verse 11, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this goes from a prophecy to David about David and his offspring to suddenly being a prophecy about the Messiah. A king who would come and he would be essentially perfect. And his kingdom would not last just his lifetime. It would last Forever, he repeats it multiple times. 
a kingdom that will last forever. So then here's Israel, they hear this prophecy to David, and David's not the one fulfillment of that. They know that, and they think maybe Solomon is, because he comes after. But then Solomon dies, and his kingdom begins to decline, not flourish. And they go, oh, well, it can't be Solomon. Maybe it's the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, and each one doesn't meet up the standards of God's promise. So the book of Kings picks up where 2 Samuel leaves off. It's the story of the kingdom of Israel searching for a human king that will be a righteous forever savior king. And what they get is fatal weakness. Matthew's gospel opens up with a genealogy tracing the line of David to Jesus. I'm not going to read that to you this morning. That's where I draw the line. But you should read it. The reason it's there is to trace a direct line from this prophecy to Jesus. It shows every descendant from David down to Jesus. The whole reason Matthew did it is he's showing you, he's pointing back to 2 Samuel 7, and he's saying, hey, this is the guy. And he's pointing to 1 and 2 Kings. This is the, the, the aching promise the unfulfilled promise that you were disappointed over over and over and over again, this is the one. And he did not come and put himself on a throne the way you thought he would. He came and he died. That's Matthew's point. So all of a sudden the genealogy is pretty glorious, right? When you understand First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, then you read the genealogy you're like, oh, this is amazing, he did it. Right? That's why the shepherds were losing their minds. All right, so I told you we'd go to the end. Revelation. Revelation 22, 12 to 17. This is Jesus talking. Prophetically to John. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. There it is, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride, that's us, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That's how Revelation ends. Tony Maria says, King speaks to everyone, every church and every nation that might be going through turmoil. <laughs> We qualify. In the midst of turmoil, chaos, and confusion, Jesus said the people were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. That's Matthew 9, 36. He came to save a rebellious people, and eventually the God over history will bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, 10. This is the question asked by the book of Kings. Is the one who comes. 
Where is he? What do we do with our weakness? <laughs> We're so weak and broken, even the best of us can't pull it off. With all the money, wealth, and power in the world given to the best man we can find, and we put him on a throne, and we give him all authority that we have, all the, everything we can give him to be successful and to lead us well, and every single time they just make a mess of it. What hope do we have? Well, the hope is that the king would come down. A king of a different kingdom that is not built by human hands and doesn't have the infection of sin in it, that doesn't have that weakness in it. Another king with a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that is perfect. And he brings that kingdom down and he plants it, not with power, but with meekness. It's absolutely incredible. And he grows it and expands it, not through domination, but he expands it through us weak, messed up people. And he puts a crown on your head and he makes everybody a king and a queen. And he says, go advance my kingdom. But wait a minute. <laughs> I'm fatally weak. I know, I'm aware. I'll sort it out. Here's my Holy Spirit. It's absolutely incredible. I know all this, all this is wrapped up in kings. So here's my question. I want to invite you to consider three questions this morning and also to kind of hold these questions like in your mind as we study through the book, okay? One is who or what am I worshiping? Obviously that begins with, you know, the kind of worship we do on a Sunday together. You know, who are you singing to? Who are you bowing to? Who are you cheering for? But also, there's a, an inner attitude of worship that we're called to, which has to do with what Ed said. Submit, who are you submitted to? Are you submitted to Christ? Are you obeying Christ and where God's love language is obedience? So are you obeying him? All that has to do with worship. Do you do what he says? And the second one is, related to that, am I submitted to what God says? Do I know what he says in his word? Am I submitted to it? Not when it's easy. Not just like the wisdom books that tell you how to make your life better. But the hard stuff like go where you don't want to go. Sacrifice what you don't want to sacrifice. Speak to who you don't want to speak to. Be kind to people who are not kind to you. Bless your enemies, like the hard stuff. That's where worship comes into play. Am I submitted to what God says? And number three, what am I doing with my weakness and the weakness of others? What do I do with it? Do I just pretend like I'm not? Do I just think, well, if I just had more money and power, I wouldn't have these, my weaknesses would be covered up. But money and power are a terrible gospel. They don't fill in the weakness. So what do you do with it? Do you take it to Christ and receive his grace in your weakness? Or do you ignore it, embrace it maybe? That's bad. I am what I am. That's another terrible direction. And what do I do with the weakness of others? When other people let me down, whether it's a king 
a leader, a ruler, a friend, a neighbor, one of your kids, one of your friend's kids, whatever. What do I do with their weakness? Can I apply the gospel of grace to them as well as myself? These are always the big questions, and these are going to be the big questions that we need to ask as we go through things together. All right. That's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Why don't we stand up? I think it would be good you know, when we ask these kinds of questions that we don't, asking yourself is kind of not super helpful. It's far better and more dangerous, admittedly, but it's far better to ask the Holy Spirit, asking him to inspect your heart, and then you, you get an honest answer, but it's a grace-filled, merciful answer. And so I just want to take a second, if we could, and ask him. You just ask him yourself, and then pause and let see if there's an answer. And so, God, we ask you God, are we, do we worship you the way you want us to worship you? Are there some little idols lingering that we're tolerating in our life? Different things we look to to save us or rescue us. Now, Siri, I can just ask you to show us. God, are we submitted to your word? Would you just show us any area of disobedience? Any area where we're just ignoring something you've been making clear to us? We want to see, we want to know. And God, in the midst of all that, where we know we are, we're all missing the mark in one way or the other, we bring our weakness to you right now. God, we know that we are fatally flawed in ways that we can't really control. We need your restraint, we need your redemption, we need your restoration. The Holy Spirit, we ask you to be strong in our weakness, to restrain the destructive tendencies in our souls that often seems to almost rule over us. Holy Spirit, would you fill us so fully that we would be fully under your control. That our mouths would only speak what you want it to speak. That our minds would only think your thoughts. That our bodies and our desires would be controlled by yours. 
God, this is the only way we get through this life without blowing it up. God, I pray that as we study Kings, that this would be the repeated thing that we are confronted with, that even the best of us, with the most we can give, and the most we can have, the most power, the most money, the most influence, the most reach, we all blow it. So God, I pray that you would put in us an ache for you and your holiness and your strength. God, that we would worship you and you alone. And God, that you would take this season of studying this book and just knock down every idol that wants to erect itself in our lives and distract our attention towards the wrong things, the wrong beliefs, the wrong kind of worship. God, focus us on you and on our need for you through your scripture. In the name of Jesus. Amen.